Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the essential role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life, Business for Good, our dedicated B Corp series. Today I catch up with Dane O'Shaughnessy, the country director of Australia and New Zealand for Patagonia, the world's leading conscientious brand. Tune in as we chat about his personal journey from a young surfer to one of Patagonia's leading executives, and why Patagonia sees itself as being in the business of activism and how they put the planet before profit in a capitalistic dominated world. Hi, Dane. Welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real privilege to have you on the show. Uh, whereabouts are you? Based down in Torquay, Victoria, about a 90 minutes southwest of Melbourne. That is a beautiful spot in this world. Yeah, very lucky. You know, it's uh, home to some of Australia's you know iconic surf brands that started here in the 60s and 70s, and um, it's still a strange sort of melting pot of um, employment and fun and culture. So, yeah, really lucky. Yeah, amazing place. I remember we lived in Melbourne for a couple of years, and I remember we drove down there on a, on a weekend. I'm just amazed by it because you don't think of Melbourne as a surf town. No. Um, I guess it's not. <laughs> Torquay's <laughs> far enough away yeah. that it's no longer Melbourne, I guess. Yep. Yeah, no, But um, did you grow up there? Grew up here. Um I was born in Melbourne, but my mum, you know, lived down here when I went to, you know, primary school and lived here till I was about 14. And then my family, you know, for some reason um, packed up and moved to north central Queensland of all places. And, um, yeah, spent about five years in a little town called Yapoon. Uh-huh. We, when people say, where's that? I usually say it's between your knife and your fork. Um, and then I accurately <laughs> describe <laughs> And then I would say it's the easiest way to think about where it is is where the Tropic of Capricorn crosses the coast with Australia, on the east coast of Australia. So, um, wow. yeah, really luckily you got a totally different experience of life up there and um, came back to Torquay where I have a lot of family and friends um, for university and never left. So you found way, your way back to the place that you love. Yeah, and my, in the end, my 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 mum and stepdad moved back as well. So it was really, a, I guess, a extended experiment. But my wife is from Yapoon, and um, you know, I would never have you know had the broad experience of life having not you know picked up and done that as a as a teenager for sure. And what was it like growing up in Torquay? We like surfing every day, every minute you could. Yeah, it was a pretty cool place to grow up. Lots of surfing. You know, back in the eighties, skating was a really big thing, and there was some you know. You know, lots of sort of, you know, counterculture sort of stuff happening down here. It was a much smaller town back then too. Very, um, you know, you know, busy in summer, quiet in winter. So there was a real sort of undulation to the place, which was really nice. Well, it's really cool that, like, you're the 
you know, the director for one of the world's most conscientious brands, and you're based in Torquay. Yep, pretty uh, lucky. Yeah, I mean, I guess were you in Torquay prior to COVID? Uh, yeah, we well actually, um, I worked for Ripcurl for about twelve years. Yeah, and so oh. there's it's a really small town with a couple of really big businesses in it, so it's already a bit of a, a dichotomy on that front. Um, Patagonia had chosen to put its headquarters here for Australia prior to my starting, I think because of its kind of, um, mm. uh, it wanted to position, you know, in the surf market first in Australia, a, a pursuit that we, you know, continue to this day. So it's a yeah. great place for, um, you know, talent. It's a great place for, you know, being right in the heart of the industry here. Um, so fortunately for me, living and working in a small town, but in a really kind of, you know, interesting um, job. Is it Quicksilver as well that was started there? Quicksilver, yep, yeah, and they, well, yeah, Quicksilver Rip headquarters back here from the from the seventies. It's a bit like you know. Do you know David uh, David Trurn, who started no. Flightboard? No. Do you know Flightboard, the no. electric surf, surfboards? He no, started that in Byron, no. and that's just like a yeah multi million dollar business now. It's incredible. And Byron's got that same sort of you know melting pot, I think, of entrepreneurs and you know places people want to go. So yeah, it's incredible. Did you always have the passion for an in- or interest in retail? Uh, not really. You know, I start <laughs> <laughs> a quick. I'll yeah. give you the, my two-minute yeah. kind of um, yeah, yeah background of like yeah how I guess I work in the clothing industry and the retail industry is I started packing boxes at Ripco when I was at university, so that's where I just yeah needed a job and managed to get one and mm-hmm. um, work. Yeah, I was starting to be a school teacher because I thought the holidays were really good, so it was going to be good for going surfing more. <laughs> And finished uni and ended up working full time at Rip Curl. And I, after Rip Curl, um, did an MBA as a bit of a, you know, I guess a career move at the time. And sometimes, you know, doing study like that, you start it because you think you're going to get a great promotion. But when you go through it and you finish it, you realize it's just giving you a whole range of tools to see the world a little differently. And it was probably one of the things that provoked me to leave and, you know, try something different after working at the same place, you know, for 12 years from the to- age of 18. Um, and then I worked for a really big retailer in Melbourne called Fusion Retail Brands. Um, that was the company that formed out of a out of business Colorado Shoe Group. You know, so I was working in a big women's retail shoe retailer, and it was about that time I realised, you know, what I really didn't want to do with my life, and that was not that I didn't like women's shoes, but that I did my best work when I was working with things that I understood and that I cared about. Um, so yeah. that really led me to kind of go, well, you know, where to from here? What what I what was I passionate about, and where could I do my best work? Um, and partly for me, that was surfing. Partly was the outdoors. Partly was kind of talky, being close to family and being close to you know the people I loved. Um, so I you know settled in on trying to figure that one out. Wow! And then and then had you done a few more jobs prior to Patagonia? Uh, well, my most important job actually after that was being a father and a house dad for about 12 months. So my wife's got a pretty successful business. So I was lucky enough to take about a year off to look after our firstborn son when he came along. And it was after that or at the end of that period that, you know, the opportunity came to do a little bit of a project and, you know, do some work with Patagonia and yeah, the rest is kind of history from there. Wow. Did Did your wife study for an MBA as well? No, but she's a chartered accountant. So she's oh the, God. the cleverest one in the family and yeah. Yeah. 
thankfully keeps me from you know being destitute. We shouldn't be inter- we should be interviewing her, not you. <laughs> She'd have some of the funniest <laughs> stories, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, that's that's really cool. You had that time out. Well, not it's not yeah. really time out, is it? <laughs> if you're well, it's twelve not, months looking after a newborn. You know, I always say to people who have the chance to do that, what was really special was it, it wasn't just an extended period of leave. It was a true kind of gap, and it was mm. meant I could be really present. I could also, you know, acknowledge that, you know, I'll what, start thinking about what I was wanting to do next. Um, but it's time I'll never lose, and, you know, I'm really grateful for it. That's really cool. I mean, in the, in the day-to-day of trying to do business or working and have a family, it can be incredibly hard, can't it? Yeah. To kind of be focused. You know I me mean, knackered by the time you come home from work and yep. the family kind of gets the brunt of it. Yeah, I think, you know, being present for whatever you're working on or whom you're with at any given time is critical because, you know, there's almost always more to do or more you could do. So really trying to figure out what's important and then and then being 100% present and giving the best you can in those moments has, has really served me well when I've got it right and there's plenty of times where I haven't for sure. Yeah. And, and did, did, you know, being a dad teach you that or did you know that before? Um, I think a dad forces that upon you, for sure. You probably, um, it goes from being like a, you know, hypothetical to an actual, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I like to think, you know, um, I'm a lifelong learner, you know, so I don't feel like I've learned it all yet, but I feel like, you know, I can, yeah. you know, I, I feel like I've got 20 years of, you know, professional experience I can draw on now and, and that's really informed and helped me figure out the sort of person I wanted to be. Working for a company that allows me to be myself and my whole self and really, you know, you know, act with good ethics and morals in my work is, is a real privilege and not lost to me that, you know, not every person's afforded that, that opportunity. Yeah. Um, so I'm grateful to be able to do that and really want to foster and encourage all the people on my team to be able to, um, you know, be the same. And presumably still surf every day? Uh, not every day, but as often as I can, for oh. sure. We're, we're five minutes from the beach, so we do get oh. to sneak off if we, nice. you know, if the waves are good. It's important, isn't it? I mean, we, I live up in uh, Northern Beaches and all the guys there, guys and women, are, are, are surfing every day and they're like they're the chilledest people I've ever met. You, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, like, life has some purpose when you have some pursuits like that in it. And and yeah. one of the things, you know, it's funny story from when I started at Patagonia too, like I had no idea about climbing, no experience with it, didn't understand it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a company that, you know, is born from the mountains and climbing, in yeah. fact. But there's a really common, you know, cultural element to the climbing community and the surfing community, and you could apply this to skiers and Basically, I describe it as, you know, people who are trying to do as little work as possible so they can spend as much time as possible enjoying these pursuits. You know, so yeah. think of the ski bum. I'm going up to the mountains. I'm going to work on the dishes at night time so I can ride the powder all day. And yeah. it's, a really, it's a really, you know, again, a privileged thing to be able to do, um, just to, you know, follow a pursuit in life that you do because it feels good, not just because you're winning or you're part of a winning team, but there's just a real kind of enjoyment in the feeling of doing it. Well, Patagonia is, is the pinnacle of conscientious businesses, um, and this is what this podcast is about specifically, uh, B Corp businesses that are, are focused on doing good uh, in the world, and it's been such a, an amazing uh, journey for us to become B Corp certified, and we're passionate about that as well. It's really cool that your organization is, is really not just a, a retail business, not just selling kind of climbing gear or sports gear, et cetera, to keep you warm, but it's also much more about saving our home the planet 
Mm-hmm. And I guess it goes back to uh, Yvonne's uh, philosophy and approach from back in the 80s when it was founded. Can you talk a bit about how Patagonia came about? Absolutely. So the company's been around for about 50 years and it started with Yvonne as a blacksmith making um, climbing gear. So he was, you know, wasn't making clothes back in the 60s. He was making, you know, hardware essentially for climbers to do these, you know, big and first ascents in North America. Um, one of the founding stories, I think, of the company and one of the things we often, you know, refer to when thinking about, like, how we ended up where we are today is a story of, um, you know, Yvonne having a realisation about how the original iron pitons, when hammered into the cracks of the rock, um, would often damage the rock when you put the pitons in and they would often, you know, you know, live there and change the experience for the next climber who came along. So they were looking at this way of climbing mountains as, you know, ultimately slowly but, you know, actually, you know, damaging the experience from the next person and kind of destroying, you know, the, the environment that they're going to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So that led to them innovating um, a new type of hardware, a little aluminium chock that could be inserted into cracks, used to climb and then taken out again without damaging um, the rock face. And I think what's really interesting about that is, you know, Yvonne made a conscientious business decision to stop making iron pitons, which was the business um, back mm-hmm. in those days, invest in all the dyes to make these new specific aluminium chocks um, and that was going to be the way he was going to do business if he was going to do it at all. And overnight, in one season, they'd sort of, you know, changed 80% of the, of the company's kind of product line, and, you know, the rest is kind of history. Um, interestingly, behind that story, it wasn't just let's start making them and hope people buy them. They used a catalogue and an essay as a way to just, you know, describe why they were making this change, and they called it, you know, I think it was called clean climbing. And the idea was, you know, explaining, mm-hmm. you know, their experience and why they thought this change was a necessary one. Wow, that was a game-changing moment, wasn't it? Big. And it also gave, I think, the company some courage that sometimes making a change and doing things for the right reason, um, people will believe in you and people will support you and you can yeah, urge you on to, on to the next thing. And it's interesting too, just that, that pivotal moment where shifted from being a blacksmith, you can't, you can't weld aluminum, can you? I mean, you got to. You have to change the process a whole, to what you'd known before. It would have been put them out of business had it not worked. Is that, is what I'm you know, <laughs> told about those times. Wasn't quite there back in the sixties with them. I was just a twinkle in somebody's eye at that point. Um, but yeah, really existential moment. There's another great little story I was thinking about to share with you. Oh, cool. About how, you know, like the company makes decisions like that. And there was a there was an example from back in the eighties where Yvonne, you know, at the time made the decision to only print the company's catalogues on recycled paper. So the company was founded as a catalogue company where you'd mail these things out, people would get them in the mail twice a year and they'd mail order their their stuff in and off they go. So it was really how the company, you know, was built in those days. And the team basically came back and said, look, you know, if we want to go 100% recycled, it's going to cost us twice as much. We can't afford to do it. Um, and what I love about this story was Yvonne's really simple answer, which is really changing the nature of the problem, which was, well, let's just print half as many. And it didn't say, well, let's make half <laughs> as much money or let's not ha- sell half as much stuff. It just said, let's not compromise on making this good decision, which is in the spirit of you know, reducing our impact on the planet, 
let's find another way to succeed despite not having everything um, that we thought we might before this decision. That's like a like part of me. Part of me is going, well, duh, that's obvious, but actually that's genius, isn't it? Because most people wouldn't even think about that. Simple. Sometimes we get so stuck trying to fix the wrong problem, um, yeah. and I think that's where Elon's played a very special role in this company is chief agitator you know asking yeah. us to really think about what we're trying to achieve here and i think yeah, yeah that that that's played out over 50 years to a much bigger bolder mission um and certainly you know many many things happening within the company and, and often people are like wow you guys it's easy for you you've done it from the start it's like well no we've just had 50 years of building process building courage having some knocks having some successes but it's a it's a philosophical commitment not just a you know operational one I guess you you bought in you bought into those those values, you you bought into that whole kind of I guess approach. Um, how how does he or the organization continue to uh, promote that? Because obviously, you guys are known as being focused on people, planet, and profit. You're not not making money. You're not just doing good and not making money. You're doing all three things really very well. Yeah, I, I think working here. For a long time now, I often think, gee, you forget how different this place is to work at. Um, but I would say it's it's very much a pretty simple mission, but one that I've never seen as present and lived in anywhere else I've worked. You know, the mission itself is we're in business to save our home planet. Um, and I think it used to be a bit more wordy than that. And I think, you know, it was just changed recently for the first time. But I've never, you know, been an organisation that really takes its accountability to the mission as seriously as it does here through all levels of decision-making, through procurement decisions, through strategic decisions, through people decisions, and in a really positive way. It's just a health check. It's a compass check. And I feel like what that's done is it's embedded itself in our culture. And one of my esteemed colleagues, Rick Ridgway, described it once as Patagonia is probably the best or the worst place you've ever worked. If these values are things that you believe in and that are congruent with you, it's like, where have you been all my life? This is fantastic. I've been waiting <laughs> to work for a company like this. But if you're someone who perhaps is more ambitious, more mercantile, who sees waste or time delays in you know, taking our time to make you know, different decisions, it can feel stifling. Um, so I think it, 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 mm. the, we're really benefiting from you know, the whole world seeing a need, uh, the need to change um, how we interact with the natural environment. Um, we've been extracting and taking too much for far too long. Um, so yeah. really, like our position hasn't changed, but I think you know, the world's turned a little bit and more and more people are looking for companies like ours, like other B Corps, um, as a way to try and find a little bit more balance and harmony with nature. Really cool. I mean, we're, we're, our, our, our vision um, is to design a better world in each and every project that we work on, every client we have. And thankfully, clients are moving far more towards that now that we're, with a matter of urgency. Um, you know, Patagonia is not uh, unusual anymore, like in that regard, because there's so many other people have followed suit because of the fires, because of COVID, because of wars, etc. So there's a, a, an incredible uh, urgency around this that uh, a lot of people are coming on board with. Uh, it might be too late, but it's it's definitely happening. And um, obviously, everyone seems to be quite novices at this because it's all new. You know, people have previously done design and created brands and products because it was about commerce, uh, purely about commerce. And now it's about how do we rethink things? What do we need? What, what don't we need? How can we redesign a better future, a better outcome with each and everything that we do? 
Uh, and I think that yeah, Patagonia was way ahead of the game in the, in the 80s in the center of capitalist America. Um, it kind of must have really stood out uh, as, a, as, a, as I said before, kind of a rebel brand in that regard. Yeah, I, th- I think initially, you know, we engaged um, first with, with this philosophy through the idea of quality. Um, which isn't really a new concept at all. You know, often, you know, if you haven't, you've heard the phrase, you get what you pay for and, you know, things that can last generations, you know, like a watch or a jacket or something made by a master craftsman, you know, will attract a premium. Um, And in fact, one of the things I sort of learned first and most love about the company is this idea of, you know, make it last a long time, keep it out of landfill. That's the best thing you can do as opposed to looking for, you know, the newest, greenest, latest material. Um, yeah. And it's something that's always been right in front of our face. So I think, you know, there's some real simple things within the company that, you know, we, we often draw upon. And we're also a highly transparent and accountable company that wants to kind of share our challenges and mistakes so we can learn from them and be accountable to them. Um, there's some wonderful kind of stories from over the years, you know, of, of how that's happened. One I'll share with you now quickly is when I first started with the company back in 2013, I flew to America, you know, to meet them for the first time and it was right at the time of the, the global sales meeting where they launched all the big campaigns and new products. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in this huge auditorium, amazing production, big videos and cool people sharing cool work. And I was really getting to know the company at that time. You know, I didn't know as much, you know, certainly as I do now about the culture of the place. And the big campaign for that year was um, Traceable Down. Now, we make products with feathers in it you know, down jackets, puffy jackets, you know, they're pretty ubiquitous these days. Yeah. I had, you know, at the time knew very little about, you know, down or puffy jackets or what was in them, to be honest with you. And um, so it was really kind of like a cool moment to go, okay, traceable down, what's that? Traceable down is a program where there is a guarantee um, and third-party certification over the sourcing of the down that goes into these jackets, making sure the mm-hmm. geese are not live plucked, nor are they mm. force-fed for Farquhar purposes to, you know, maximise um, yield. You know, so when you pluck a goose of their feathers, but, you know, they grow them again, you can pluck them again. They're these horrible practices, oh. um, which was horrible to hear about. Um, yeah. But how this thing came about is that a number of years earlier, an animal, animal rights group came to the company and said, we think you might have, you know, practices in your supply chain where this is happening. And to hear how the company responded to that, not by calling in the spin doctors, trying to deny and you know, yeah. mind, was, was incredible. It was this power of transparency, which was, let's tell our customers about it. Let's tell them what's you know, going on. Let's begin an investigation to see what's going on. And then we'll tell everyone what's happening and what we're going to do about it. And again, this sort of like simple yet effective way of dealing with problems that sound really human, sound really mm-hmm. kind of things that you would appreciate anyone doing taking accountability for what's going on in their business um seem to be you know the opposite of what most companies do what most of us learn about what to do in business um so to kind of like understand this idea of transparency that sat behind this huge initiative that took place after a moment of transparency a moment of um digging into you know what may have happened led to a really um positive um initiative and innovation within the company incredible does that mean not then not using uh, duck feathers or what? We still use duck feathers, but we have a third-party certification over all of our down supply chain um, that makes sure that geese aren't live plucked nor force-fed. 
and since we've actually incorporated um, recycled down into our supply chain so you're able to actually kind of you know take dunas and pillows from all parts of the world oh, wow. you know cut them open you know wash the feathers down and put them into new garments and there's yeah. still you know lots of um other materials that we use in different sorts of garments sort of synthetic options as well just that's a really interesting uh, example and patagonia is a, i imagine a very large company i mean what what's the scale of it Global. uh it's it's we're a big business you know um you know we're, we we um Sales have been reported north of a billion dollars US a year, so we're a big company. Um, we make a lot of these kind of garments, you know, in the in the hundreds of thousands, you know, every year. Um, and again, you know, finding that kind of balance between you know low lowest footprint we can in making our goods, making them last as long as you can, repairing them for our customers for free, taking them back at the end of their life so they can go be recycled or you know reimagined in a um, responsible way is the kind of the big broad business model that um, I think many are buying to. Yeah. In terms of uh, the kind of the, there's the bigger picture, I guess you said before, Yvonne's still very much part of the business globally. Um, does Australia, are you responsible for Australia, New Zealand, or Australia, Asia Pacific? Or, uh, Australia, or? New Zealand is our, you know, broad remit. Funny fact Thank about you. Yvonne though, he has, yeah, to my knowledge, never actually held an executive position in the company. He's always had a chief executive globally, and I think mm-hmm. you know sat on the board and you know agitated and participated in his own way. But um, he describes that as his own MBA, which is a management by absence. <laughs> Shit, that's where I'm going wrong. Well, that's good. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Um. Did but do you, do you does he give you or do you have the freedom to do like activation projects in Australia, New Zealand, or or, or do you have to go with what's happening in uh, in America? A uh, lot of latitude. One of the, I mean, we have one global product range, and we and we do so because we have such strong mm. supply chain commitments in our products. Um. So really mm. proud and and thankful to have the support of a centralized team who who take care of all of that. Um, there's a lot of, you know, global stories, films, otherwise that, you know, can make sense in our market, but we've had huge success, you know, really looking and using the mission as a tool for environmental protection here in Australia um, and New Zealand. Um, so really the company, I think, gets most excited. Our customers have really been most enamoured with when we've been able to use the the brand's tools, the brand's reputation in support of um you know, grassroots environmental issues that are happening you know, here in, in Australia. And a recent controversy was the PEP 11 saga. Um, was that something you guys were actively involved in? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it goes back a few years for us, you know, and, and you know, this campaign has been on, a, I guess, a long arc of fossil fuel extraction in our oceans. And, and we came to that mm. campaign through some friends and grassroots groups in South Australia, you know, fighting to keep big oil companies out of the Great Australian Bite. Um, and, you know, like we thought we might get fired for picking a fight with an oil company as most people, you know, try and avoid that, like the plague. But, you know, we were encouraged to, you know, do what we could to, to support this, you know, these people living in the middle of nowhere trying to keep, you know, multinational companies from drilling holes out in the middle of the ocean. Um, and, yeah, the campaign itself had a win with, you know, Equinor, a Norwegian oil company, pulling out as a result of, you know, the pressure created um, through, you know, a huge range of Australian, you know, coastal communities, specifically surfers. So that wind really put some, you know, wind in our sails and many other not-for-profit groups working in this space. And it really, you know, from there translated into going, what else is happening? What else is happening around our coasts um, with people looking to, you know, 
you know, start new fossil fuel extraction projects, um, that both is bad for, you know, the places in which we're trying to protect, but certainly have, you know, the bigger effect on climate that we're all trying to avoid. How, how much are you kind of daily conversations you're having with in businesses about the planet versus retail or sales? Um, well, that ebbs and flows for sure. I'd say the most exciting work and the most proud work that we do is, is our environmental work. But I think that comes as a result of having a successful business. As you said before, like it's not lost on us that our crazy sort of business experiment Unless we are profitable, unless we are, you know, good at what we do, then we're not really a business at all. We're just a charity. So we are really conscientious that we have to create a, you know, a business model that serves, um, you know, can turn a profit and can, you know, in turn use those profits and wealth created um, for these projects. Um, so, you know, I'd say depending on the day would be the answer to that, but we definitely spend a lot of time talking about both. Yeah. I guess your customer base is people that are passionate about, Climate, passionate about nature uh, and partici- participating in it without damaging it, um, climbing, uh, rolling yeah. around in it, walking, etc., camping. Um, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because you, it's not necessarily, I guess pe- there are some people that buy. I mean, what's the percentage of people that buy your product just to wear in every day? I think there's a lot. I, w- I would say in our sort of research, you know, Australians are, you know, a fast-growing cohort in this sort of, you know, lifestyle of health and sustainability, people thinking about the impact of their purchases on people, mm-hmm. planet, or, you know, um, you know eth- ethics in that, that regard. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, what we've seen is whilst there's a core sport community who love us for the technical nature of our products, there's a values-aligned, you know, um, you know customer mm-hmm. who might go, hey, we want to protect the places that we play in and love also. But there's also broadly, you know, lots of people starting to kind of go, well, who's making my clothes? You know, are people getting paid a living wage? You know, we are one of the, you know, the world's biggest, um, you know, fair trade certified, you know, clothing makers because of the commitments we're putting quietly behind the scenes. But there's so, um, so we kind of often say, hey, you know, there's a broad range of people who I think shop and participate with our brand there's lots of different reasons why you might choose to do so so thank you number one we appreciate um all of our customers and but i think acknowledging that we are in a time where you know people are no yeah not everyone's just looking for the cheapest or the latest or the coolest i think people are it's a bigger group of people growing more quickly especially with young people who are seeking out brands um and businesses who you know are doing more good yeah and by a lot of people are saying they want to buy local uh, more so than before. We've got this really annoying election coming up. Well, you could say it's annoying if you want. If It's just like, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be much option. Uh, there seem to be the two leaders are kind of very much similar in a lot of ways. It's coming up in the next couple of days by the time this goes live. Uh, what message uh, do you have for voters? Well, you know, I think... Our company, which is an American company, has long been politically active, um, not supporting a particular side of politics, but in America anyway, saying get out and vote because it's not compulsory there. Um, we've sort of taken that here and sort of said, hey, you know, vote, but think about what your vote counts for. You know, think about what you care about, you know, and what effect and what the policies are for, for each party or each representative that you might be voting for and how that might affect you. You know, climate is a huge issue. We think the political arena is one of the barriers to making, you know, real 
meaningful long-term progress in that space. And, you know, it's a, it's a messy kind of, um, you know, space with a lot of different points of view. Um, I think there's a lot of fear from people and, and industry about, you know, what can be lost and what does a transition to, you know, clean energy look like from, you know, fossil fuel, you know, lead, you know, energy. So I would say to people is like, you know, read, listen, talk, communicate, and really, you know, find, you know, the knowledge that you, you know, the best knowledge you can to help make an informed vote for yourself, but for the, uh, for the community more broadly. Yeah, I guess uh, don't be passive thinking that there's, your voice doesn't count when it actually does. Yeah. I guess for a lot of people, just knowing who to vote for, I guess it's down to the individual. But Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I try not to get too political myself because <laughs> yeah, we could be, we'd probably there. need twice as long if we wanted to. And I'll be okay. um, saying it, but, all right, all right. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of people out there that want to make a difference. You know, I hope the system gets a little broken before it gets a little bit more fixed. Yeah. Um, what what can us Aussies do in the world in, in terms of making it a better place? Wow. That's a, what can we do? That's well, a big I think, question. well, we yeah. are really lucky in Australia, I think. We are a, you know, Western democracy, which, you know, where there's a lot of individual freedom. We're a wealthy country. You know, we often forget that sometimes in the pursuit of having more. Um, we are, whilst we are heavily reliant on an extraction and sort of, you know, you know, minerals extraction kind of economy, there's huge opportunity for us in a new economy around renewable energy, around services, around technology that, you know, I really hope that the country can make the leap to. Um, I think we can be a leader when it comes to, you know, environmental protection. We have some of the most amazing, most beautiful places in the planet, ocean and land. Um, and we have a, you know, a fairly reliable political, you know, structure where those protections can be created and kind of maintained. So I think, you know, we, you know, what can we all do is, well, we, hey, we can, you know, vote for a better future. We can all work for a better future. We can kind of, you know, make working together and being less polarising a priority in that. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, we, we're a sort of a egalitarian society down here where all of those opportunities, for the most part, we believe, are available to everybody. It's not, you know, mm. what suburb you're from or what, what your last name is, but in fact, mm -hmm. those who have got the, the get up and gumption, you know, get a go. That's really great uh, insight, great advice. Your Don't Buy This Jacket campaign was fantastic, uh, and, and I love that. I mean, it's, it was, again, kind of bizarre uh, that a business would be saying not to buy something, repair it instead, um, which is really, really cool. I mean, how did that come about? Um, well, it was before my time, but, you know, Rick Ridgway, yeah. whom I mentioned earlier, was a big part of that ad. And it, it was actually a couple of years in the making. I think it's a it's a, an ad that is absolutely congruent with our values. Mm. Um, and it was really about us at the time, you know, trying to, you know, stand out from the pack. So that ad ran on as a full page ad in the new york times on black friday in america which is you know the biggest shopping day of the year so it was very much a yeah. juxtaposition of what everyone else was yeah. saying you know and yeah. since it's you know like you know it's a case study at universities around the world of like you know incredible marketing um but i often say like this sort of marketing this sort of advertising only works if there is a high degree of integrity and a high degree of truth to what you're putting out there yeah. Yeah, you know, people yeah, yeah. and my personal view is 
we've all got the world in our pocket now. I mean, we can all see instantly information that we want. Mm. All we have to do is like tap it into our phone. You know, so the yep. the the ability to um, be something that you know is becoming much more difficult. So I think you know campaigns like this, or even more radical stuff that you know other brands do, only works when you know when people look at it, dig deep behind it, and kind of go, "Well, you know, you didn't just say it; you're kind of doing it." So for me. You know, don't buy this jacket would not have been as successful as if we didn't you know have all of these other elements of the business like you know our repair hubs our recycling kind of um you know uh, processes that that support the the philosophy that sits behind a campaign like that yeah we seem to in this country um have lost that idea of repairing anything i mean you see in the side of the roads all the time people throwing all kinds of perfectly good running machines kettles chairs etc oh, it's nuts you know? And you don't have to go back very far, you know, to your your grandma or your granddad who everything was repaired. Everything was designed to be repaired. In fact, you know, mm. people rarely threw anything away. Um, so it's a fairly modern convenience kind of thing. So we often say, hey, we don't have to go too far back in time to connect with that kind of muscle. So hopefully it doesn't take too long to kind of shake off this sort of planned obsolescence kind of, you know, culture and society that we've you know, pretty quickly fallen into and you know hopefully yeah. that's just one of the steps of you know making the world a little bit better yeah i mean i remember as a kid back in canada my mum making me and my sisters um you know purple purple shorts yeah. <laughs> she made matching dresses for my, i mean that was at the time was also slightly awkward too um yeah. <laughs> other kids were getting theirs from Kmart or wherever they were buying but um it was minus the brand and i guess from an early age i understood the power of a brand i understood that it wasn't just a pair of shorts, it was minus a brand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, what was it? It wasn't Nike. It wasn't all these other brands that everybody else was wearing. I kind of stood out because I didn't have a brand. Yeah, which is kind um, of a bit sad well, that we all find our kind yeah. of self-esteem through the things that we buy. Um, as a real psychology to, you know, what we wear, the things that we, you know, show on our clothes and our cars and the things that we do, it's a way of expressing something about ourselves to the world. You know, and I think if you've got it a is. Louis Vuitton handbag or a Mercedes Benz or a Patagonia jacket, like you're kind of in some ways expressing yourself. Um, and there's positives in that, but there's also some, you know, I think some some important, you know, self-reflection to have about, you know, why are we doing that? Why do we feel the need to do so? Well, obviously advertising plays a big part too in that. I mean, yep. I mean there's not – the publications, I mean, of I guess advertising massively, constantly, sh you know, showing products – uh, alluring us into purchasing that. I guess there's a difference in terms of Patagonia. I know you say that a bit large part is actually people buying it for everyday wear, but when you're buying a product that is kind of engineered for a purpose, like for climbing or whatever it might be, you know that that's designed for that purpose. It will last. It's um, it's it's a sustainable product in itself, and it'll kind of save your life potentially mm. as well. How has your worn wear initiative been received locally in Australia? It's been pretty good. I mean, we've had, you know, different iterations of this around the world for, for years. You know, right now we've got a, a Warnware permanent repair center in our Sydney store where you can buy something, have it altered, bring a garment in and we'll repair it for free. You can bring in a competitor's garment and we'll, we'll repair it for free. So fundamentally, you know, those sort of things have been really well received. But it's just an extension of our ironclad guarantee, which is, you know, we want to try and keep your gear out of landfill. We will repair it. We will, 
you know, change it over, refund it if you are not happy and it's not meeting, you know, your performance expectations. So I think, you know, again, when I said before, there's this idea of going, are we, you know, delivering on our promise? Are we kind of, you know, putting our money where our mouth is, you know, when it comes to our values? Warnware for me is a direct expression of, you know, the reverence we place on product and, and quality within that, in that space. And, and a, as a, you know, I guess a contract with our customers to say, hey, we make it, we stand by it. Um, and this is how we do so. We're really lucky that they do make high quality gear because the overall return rate globally for, for our products is, you know, tiny compared to what I know about other sports brands. Um, so we may not be able to, um, you know, maybe we put a little bit more at the front end to save a little bit more on the back end. So you can bring a competitor brand into the store and, and they'll repair it? For free, on the spot. Oh, my God, that's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how when but, people do that, they're like, you know, it's the sort of brand Patagonia, and I say this as a, as a customer and a, and a fan myself is, it truly is one of those brands that the more you learn about it, the more you love it. Yeah, so yeah. we want to provoke curiosity. We want to kind of open a conversation about repairing something, not replacing something. Although if that's, yeah. you know, what suits you and that's the right thing to do, we'll, we'll honour that. But it's amazing how when you invite people in and sort of, like you say, don't buy this jacket. Seems like the, the last thing you want to say on the busiest selling day of the year. You, you, yeah. you get people to stop and you get them to sort of say, why? Why would you say that? Or why are you doing something that's a little different from, um, you know, from the norm? Have you, have you, have you seen with, uh, with COVID and the lockdown, obviously the online retail sales went through the roof? Um, did that affect you guys in that in that way as well? Yeah, we had you know great response online. I think you know shops being closed and people being stuck at home, you know you know wishing they were outdoors, you know really helped anyone who was in that sport leisure outdoor market. And you know we certainly you know, had some good periods you know through 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 the crisis. Um, you know, and Patagonia has luckily been fairly resilient through you know most financial crises. Um, mainly because we're not trying to grow as big as quickly and as fast as we can selling everywhere we can. You know, we're really deliberate about where we sell, whom our wholesale partners are, um, not opening too many stores, like really earning our customer loyalty rather than just buying our way into it. And we found, you know, over periods like COVID, um, that kind of gives you a pretty strong, you know, resilient experience of, of a crisis rather than um, than otherwise. That's really cool. I also noticed during the COVID time, people were uh, obviously at home a lot more. Um, by being at home, they also kind of become reconnected with their home and their family and nature. And have you seen like a like a, a kind of a growth in the kind of people getting out and about hiking and and doing kind of getting amongst it? Yeah, I think here in Australia too, not being able to travel abroad, which was yeah. always a big, you know, market as well for people selling, you know, adventure style clothing. You know, if you're going to, you know, skiing in Japan or climbing the Himalayas, you know, we were a brand of choice. But a lot of that demand, I guess, turned inward. And, and as we've seen, people are experiencing Australia at record numbers, you know, camping grounds are booked out. You can't buy a caravan or a tent because they're sold out. You can't buy a mountain bike. There's, there was a real sort of, you know, um, thirst, I think, for, for getting outdoors and getting outside. So we certainly, um, you know, make great gear to support some of those pursuits. So I think we did we did pretty well at that, as did many other brands too. Mm. Other, other retail businesses that are selling products, you know, clothing, et cetera, sports gear, how, how can – how can these? How can other retailers contribute contribute to you know creating a better world uh, with the same kind of con conscious that you guys have without obviously copying it? 
you know, finding their own voice? Well, I'd encourage anyone who finds some value in copying us to do so. You know, I think a lot of okay. what we try to be different for are things that are going to make the world a bit of a better place. You know, are we making our products with the lowest footprint possible? Are we using our brand as an agent for good? Um, but I think I know we're here to talk. You know, we're here because of B Corp, and I'm, I'm a big advocate of B Corp as a vehicle to help mm-hmm. businesses um, first evaluate and understand their own impact. You know, and think about you know how they can you know be a better business through that process. But also at the other side, see B Corp as a real marker and a real um, you know I guess you know validation of, of those values and those pursuits. And why I love it, I mean, you know, I, I think there's just it's just a broad church that does allow all sorts of businesses, from single operators to multinational companies like Danone, who was North America's you know, biggest mm-hmm. B Corp, you know, find ways to um, you know improve and be recognised for that, both at a at, at a customer level and a, and a consumer level. I always ask people at the end of the podcast, uh, you don't have to answer this yes or no, depending on the name of the title of the podcast, but have you designed your life? Well, I was thinking about this question, thinking of design your life. And that's probably something which I would say I've done in retrospect. You know, I think back and maybe crafted to it and go, what an amazing, you know, set of decisions. But I think the reality is, is um, the older you get, the more comfortable you get with uncertainty. And it's the sort of values and the sort of, you know, person you want to be when you encounter challenges that are really important. So I would say designing the person I want to be has probably been a lot more important to me than designing the elements in which, you know, I live my life. You know, I definitely wish I, you know, went for more runs, more surfs, had more time for some other things I wish, you know, in in life that we we have our pursuits. But I think on balance... um, I still leap out of bed every morning, really happy to do the work mm. that I'm doing. I always ask cool. myself, if it all ended today here at Patagonia, would I be happy with what I've achieved so far? And the answer is always yes. And that gives me oh, a lot good. of courage to keep taking you know, the right and what I think are big decisions to um, you know, help this company move forward. Wow. Dane, that's great. <laughs> that was a really good answer. Um, it's funny because people do say, uh, no, I haven't, or yes, I have. But they, to unpack it like you did there was, was wonderful. And, and, and it is kind of a question around kind of that retrospective view on it and how, how you made certain decisions throughout your life that have been for the better uh, and learn and grown from that. I've only got one. You might as well, you know. Yeah. And you always have regrets no matter what you do. And look, you know, I just think, if, had I thought, I, of course – as we all do, I think, aspire to big things in life. But I never would have thought I'd found myself in such a unique position today. Um, and I just do not take that for granted. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, I think pressure one can heap on oneself when you have the opportunity to do good and do more. Um, and that's a real balancing act too, not to allow yourself to get burnt out through the pursuit of, like, living up to some, you know, some other standard, you know, that, that you've set upon yourself uh, through giving. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a bottomless. There's saving the planet is going to take all of us. It's not saying one yeah. of us can do. And if we try, yeah. you know, we've seen this time and time again, especially in our not for profit, you know, partnership community, is people throw themselves into this, and then after six or twelve months, they need a break. They've, they've given everything yeah. they can, and I just see this work yeah. as 
it's forever work and it's the sort of it's both professional and personal you know i do what i can yeah. at home i do what i can at, at work and i acknowledge the yeah. influence that um this position at this company affords me yeah wow cool that is awesome dane thank you no worries it was great to um great to have this yarn today Thanks for listening in to this episode of Design Your Life, Business for Good with Patagonia Australia and New Zealand Director Dane O'Shaughnessy. Tune into the next episode where we'll be catching up with DNAD Chairman Tim Lindsay to launch our DNAD Impact series, Designing for Impact. In this series, I'll catch up with some of the most inspiring Impact Award entrants from this year's DNAD Awards, the most highly recognized international design program in the world. DNAD Impact celebrates creative ideas that are making a real and positive difference to the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.